Morning, friends. Let's uh, flip over to Romans chapter 16. <clears throat> I hope your lovely spring morning is going well. With flowers and birds and hail and <laughs> it's been kind of crazy, hasn't it? All right. Romans 16 is a little bit of a standalone chapter. It's the conclusion chapter to the epistle of Romans. Um, it's singular and uh, kind of a, apart from the rest of the book in the sense that uh, what you have are uh, lists of names. <laughs> it's, moment, it's much more than that. Uh, there's 28 names that Paul is going to talk about here. This is his farewell address. Uh, these are people that uh, Paul has, uh, is, is writing as, as a kind of a final portion here that when Phoebe brings this letter to Rome, uh, that it's read that these are people that he wanted to greet there in Rome. One of the interesting things about the letter, remember it's written in the winter of uh, 56 and kind of carrying into 57 when he was there uh, wintering at Corinth. And uh, at this time, Paul has never been to Rome. So he's about to, that we have recorded for us, and none of his missionary journeys took him there. Uh, but at this time, he names 28 people and, and greetings to them at a place he's never been. Uh, and most likely, as we read this, you'll see some of the names in here, and you'll probably recognize them from our study through Acts or your own personal studies and reading. Uh, you have Priscilla and Aquila. You have Rufus from the Gospels, probably the same guy. So you, you'll, there's names you're going to recognize, but these are all people that Paul just met involved in God's work. Does that make sense? They're just relationships that, that uh, began, for example, Priscilla and Aquila. They make tents together. They end up in the same city together. They travel together after that. Then they kind of leave him, and, and he goes on in his journey and, uh, and, and different things like that. And really, without trying to achieve some sort of crescendo amazing point that we could put into a 30-second thing on our Facebook or something, just to say this, I think that we all, for the most part, desire relationship. Right? It's a basic human need and desire to be accepted. It, it's, it's, it's why we, we create identities out of things. It, it's why you, know, you have a skateboarder crowd, and then you have a music crowd, and then you have a jock crowd, and then you have the nerd crowd, or you know, whatever. I'm not really saying they're nerds. But you know, just, just that's how we would designate them. You know, they all went on to make a lot of money, and you know, here we are. But so it's... You know, you designate people into groups where we go to that group and we feel accepted by that group, right? If you're in, I remember when I went to high school, if you're in the music crowd, you wore black jeans and like a Megadeth t-shirt. And it'd be like, oh, okay, you're one of us. You come into the crowd, you listen to that music, you celebrate it together, you talk about it, you know, you smoke weed together, whatever you're going to do. And you had fellowship, you had acceptance, right? If you were in the chess club, you played chess and talked about, you know, Vlasovsky's defense or whatever. If you, you know, all these different things because we wanted to be accepted. We wanted to have identity. We, we wanted to do those things. And, and the weird thing is, uh, not, maybe not weird, but one of the challenging things that we, in our society today, I haven't lived for all time, obviously, but from what I read and what I observe from history and so forth, we live in probably one of the most isolated times in history. We're, we're, we are more isolated now, whether it's from pandemics or it's from, um, you know, whatever, uh, relationship statuses, whether it's from electronics. There's a million things that we can point to of why we don't converse as much, why we don't invest in much in each other. And it's just kind of this bizarre thing that's occurring where 
I think the vast majority of us, obviously some people are born hermits and some people are made hermits, but so I'm not trying to challenge your individual feeling about other people because I can't challenge what, what you feel in that sense. But what I do want to challenge and what I do want to talk about is that if you desire friendships, if you and your soul realize I'm looking for deeper friendship, then what we can observe is that the most deepest of friendships happen in conflict and they happen in difficulty and, and God's work is a breeding ground for that, isn't it? God's work, God's work, what do I mean by that? I just mean interacting with each other, <laughs> coming to church, being part of something. It is a breeding ground for conflict and difficulty. But for people, there's a great proverb in the King James Version in Proverbs 18. One of the Proverbs there says this, he that would have friends must be friendly. Seems pretty basic, right? That doesn't, that doesn't seem like a real eye-opener. Like, oh. But a lot of times, we can come to like a public place like church or you know, a lot of people, and, and we can desire this friendship and this fellowship and, and, and deeper relationships, but we never enter into it. And again, I'm not here to measure you personally or anything like that. I'm talking about the, the church, of, you know, our church, Christians, in a universal sense. And so more and more, now more than ever, church is kind of this, it's become this thing where you show up, you do your thing, whatever it might be, get some coffee, maybe, maybe have a chat, maybe not, maybe just sit in the seat that you've always sat in for the entire time you've come here, whatever it might be, and then, and then you, you hopefully are encouraged, and I mean that sincerely, and you hopefully get a chance to worship the Lord, and then we're out because we got sports and families and you know, all these things, and things that aren't bad, I'm not saying that those things are bad. But for many of us, it can leave the church in a lurch, in a sense, in a bad place, because Jesus told us, through Paul, Paul writes when he's writing to the Ephesians, and he gave us this little hint, and I think it's kind of a, to me, it's kind of a flagship verse. He says that the body, us, right, the body of Christ, builds itself up in love as every joint supplies. Every joint, not joint, right? As every joint supplies, <laughs> right? Meaning, as a body... That when if I if, if God as God uses me, I'm going to cater to other people, right? If I have hands, I'm going to bring other people food, like my mouth. You know, just it's that picture of a body. I don't think we have to super elaborate on that. So Jesus could have said, you know what, here's how we're gonna do it. We're gonna have like a Star Trek deal where I kind of phase down every Sunday and I pop in front of everybody and I teach the Bible. Because he'd be way better than me and anybody else, right? But he didn't say that. Instead, he said, the body builds itself. See, so, so the church is what we make it to be, literally. If, we, if the culture of our church is backbiting and hating and judgment, then that's what the church will be, and it'll fall woefully short of what its design is, right? If we decide to invest and to move forward and to decide to go outside of our comfort zones, and we'll talk more about that because there is no just one-all answer to this. There's no just like, you should do this. Because I understand there's a lot of things to be overcome sometimes in beginning to invest in a body. But the, the, the reality is that we're called, instead of just being zapped by Jesus or having you know, the, the, the best multi-campus church ever with Jesus on the screen or anything like that, we're called to actually give to one another and build, to one, build one another up, to have relationships. And so as we read uh, Romans chapter 16, it can be easily dismissed. Well, like, of course Paul knew all these people. He traveled around for years. But you don't make relationships traveling around, do you? You don't make friends traveling around. You make friends while traveling around by making friends, by investing, 
by asking, how are you doing? And then actually listening to what that person says. By considering if they say, oh, I'm having this problem. By, by saying, oh, what, what happened? How can we work through that? So we see, in, as we read this, we're going to see all these people that Paul invested in and that invested in Paul. And it ends up being uh, relationships that are so strong, if we can put it that way, bonding, that when he decides to write a letter, he has a whole section where he says, make sure you greet this person. And make sure you, you say hi to that person. And make sure you, you know, it's, it's a pretty, uh, uh, I think, encouraging thing that, that happens here. And so hopefully we can adopt that as people to be investing wherever it is that God has us. To find the relationships we're looking for. Excuse me. And to be able to give and to take uh, from one another. So he starts off here in chapter 16 and verse 1. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centuria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So the first person that he introduces is a woman named Phoebe. And with from the verbiage here, and I'm not here to get into... Uh, uh, gender roles or anything like that or have a debate uh, about any of that. But this is a highly debated set of verses. And we're just going to throw that out there right now. So the, the, the debate, debate comes from this. Was Phoebe an actually a titled deacon or was she a servant? See, in Greek, just like in English, there's a lot of words that just are they're the same word for two different meanings. Does that make sense? Like, for example, in, uh, in Greek, the word for woman is also the word for wife. And so you only know if a person is a woman and a wife or a woman with not, and not a wife by looking at the context. So that can be difficult sometimes. Well, trying to read 2,000 years ago and figure out what it means, right? One of the other words for that is servant. So the word for servant, diakonon, or diakonis, depending on the, the usage of it, the Greek word for servant is also the title that's in the church, meaning uh, it, it, from church history, and that, that would be extra biblical books and reports from people that you know, lived then, uh, and also from uh, the book of Acts and so forth. From church history, there was actually a created office as deacon. Right, you remember that from uh, from Acts chapter five. Uh, there's some uh, some kind of it appears to be racially motivated uh, issues where some people are getting neglected out of a daily giving of whether it was money or food is not to easily determined. But there was this neglecting that was happening, and so it was Hellenistic Jews or Greek people that had become Jews and actually uh, uh, born Jewish race, Jewish people. Does that make sense? So all these Jews, remember the church is made up. It begins with with Jews. Hellenistic Jews and Jewish Jews. And they all get saved. 3,000 people get saved in one day, right? They're all Jews. They're there for Pentecost. I mean, we can't say, we're speaking in generalities. Nobody's saying that no Gentile showed up and was like, oh, I want part of this. We're not saying that. We're just saying that mostly it was Jews. And so the, what happens is they start uh, logistics startup for this 3,000-person church with no place to meet other than the temple and all this. And then there was a daily giving because all these people are giving, and so they were helping people that were uh, without means. And, and that's because some people just decided to stay in Jerusalem because of this great movement of the Spirit, and some people were just in Jerusalem and already impoverished. 
And so what happens is the, the, uh, the Hellenistic Jews or the Greek Jews feel like, we don't know if it's valid or not, but they felt like they were being neglected in, in widows, that they were being neglected in the giving of the food or the money. And so, the, and, but the Jewish Jews, the Jew-born Jews, that they were not being neglected. So they felt because they were Greeks that they weren't getting what the Jews, the Jewish Christians, uh, born Jews, should have gotten. So they, they, the, the, uh, the leadership, in essence, they go to the, the people that they know that, that are part of this church that's 3,000 people and happened in one day. Uh, so obviously you're going to have radically different maturity levels and all sorts of things. It's going to be crazy. It'd be absolutely crazy. And so he, uh, they go to them and they say, hey, why don't you look out and I want you to find people that you know are servants, that serve at the church. Uh, and, and, and we can take those people and we can put them in charge of this duty, which is making sure that the Greek, the Greek, converted, Greek people converted to Judaism, converted to Christianity, can make sure that they're fed, right? And so they pick these guys. And they all have Greek names, interestingly enough. None of them were... Uh, Jewish descent, at least as far as their names say. And they, and they do that. So that was, that was created, and we know from that and from history that there is actually an office of deacon. And, and it's kind of changed today in a lot of churches, and I'm not criticizing that, uh, but a deacon primarily, historically, has always been in charge of essentially service, making sure that uh, the poor are cared for, making sure that the, the, the people in the church are cared for. They're kind of that... Uh, that workhorse, you know, probably giant mansion in heaven type of person. You know, you know what I'm saying? And so the question is, is Phoebe a servant that lived and went to church at Centria, which was about uh, four miles from, from Corinth, which is where Paul is writing this from. And so he met her. Maybe she came to see him. You know, we, there's some inference there. We want to be careful. And so he has some sort of contact with her and gets to know her, or is she actually a titled deacon at the church in Centuria? And you go, why does anybody care? I don't know. Because we have to put everything in its box and then feel good about it. It's just what we do, right? So here's the thing. Based on the wording, it's pretty likely, it's, I, I would say it is, I mean, for whatever that's worth, that she was a titled deacon. And here's why. It's the verbiage. Number one, he says, I commend you, I commend her uh, to, uh, to you. The word commend is the same word that Paul uses of himself and the other apostles when he writes to Corinth the second time, at least the, the, the second letter that we have. It was probably actually the third or fourth time he wrote to them. But in, 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 when he writes to the Corinthians a, uh, a second time for us, he says, do I have to commend myself again to you? In other words, the, the word, the word uh, commend is to establish, or you could translate it uh, to come near or to, uh, or even to, um, oh, that's what I'm looking for, to consist. So he's using this word to say, it's like an official idea. I'm commending her to you, okay? Also, history tells us, and this is pretty much like all of academia except for a few holdouts, all agree that historically Phoebe carried the letter for Paul, right? So Paul dictated it. Another guy wrote it, which we have his name is uh, Tertius. He wrote it for him, and then Phoebe carried it. History tells us, again, now we're venturing outside of the Bible, so feel free to throw it in the trash. History tells us that the carriers of the letters would typically be the reader of the letter. 
And that if there were questions about the letter, that the reader would then answer those questions. Okay? Uh, so all that to say, it's a pretty important mission that Phoebe is on. Does that make sense? And it's commissioned by Paul, and she's there to read the letter. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. We don't know. Okay? But in the, in the wording that he's using, that he, con, he commends her, our sister Phoebe, a, surface, a servant or a deaconess of the church to, at Centria. The other reason that, that the vast majority of academia, um, whether that matters to you or not, is up to you, I suppose, but that they agree that this wording is based on, or it shows, he's not just saying, hey, here's this gal Phoebe. She's super cool. I met her when I was in Corinth. And now she's going to meet you, and I just want you to make sure that you're nice to her. She helps some at Centuria. He's not doing that. He's making more of an official thing, like, this is Phoebe. I commend her to you as a servant of God. Not only does he say that, he says she's our sister, and that she is a deaconess, not just a servant. Like, yeah, she does some work there, but an actual title at Centuria. Now, titles are tricky, right? Because title can really be a negative thing in a lot of ways, right? If you misuse a title or if you're proud of your title or if you feel important because of title, that's really bad. But especially in a church setting, this particular setting, where you have new teachings, right? There's no Bible, right? Remember that? There's no Bible. It hasn't been assembled yet. It won't be assembled for 300 years from now. You have teachers that are going around and teaching at different gatherings from the apostles. You have people that were essentially approved. They carried letters. They actually had letters that were signed by the apostles, and that would be their right to speak at a church. So to have Paul write and say, this woman is titled as a servant, as having credibility because of her service at Centuria, would be what this church would need to know to accept what she's doing. Does that make sense? So again, does it matter? I don't know. You can decide that. I think it matters in the sense that a lot of times Paul and the Bible and Christianity and even Judaism and ultimately God kind of gets this like anti-woman bad rap thing where it's as if like God had just kind of like made woman and she's like kind of secondhand kind of a deal or something. But the reality is whether you're talking about the New Testament or the Old Testament, the Bible's actually been, not the people that have used it, but the Bible has actually been the most liberating thing that's ever happened to women. You have to understand that, like, for example, in the law, right? So pre-law, so 3,200 years ago, if you were to look at the Fertile Crescent and how human beings spread out from the Fertile Crescent, the vast majority of human beings were, were nomads. You have Nimrod, who kind of begins this first kind of uh, warlord type of thing, when he kind of takes over these different kingdoms in the Fertile Crescent, and then he begins this cool religion and then builds a tower to it. We're familiar with that out of Genesis, right? But up until that point, there is no law. It's, it's the strongest person rules. And whoever's the strongest in the relationship or in any context decides what happens, right? Because God is being forsaken on the daily, so when the law comes in, it does something crazy. It says things like, hey, ladies, you can divorce a bad husband. That was from the law, right? If your husband's beating you, cheating on you, you can leave them behind. And you get a piece of paper from the village elders, which means you get no shame, that you have rights. 
That's from Levitical law. So I think it's important to establish that no matter what, you know, somebody, uh, some professor at a college read a pamphlet about one time or whatever, the Bible is very much pro-women. So is Paul. So is Moses. Now, do people misuse it? Well, yeah. People misuse all sorts of things. But you can't take misuse of obscure verses or verses that people don't interpret correctly to then say, well, see, ah, Christianity's bunk. That, that's not genuine. That's not real. But when you do your research, you see that God's super into women, and he created them, and he loves them, and there's great purpose for women. So in the rest of these, we also see some other really cool stuff. Oh, I'm sorry, let me say this too. Uh, help her in whatever she may have need of you. Um, literally, stand by her in whatever manner. That's, what, that's the literal translation. Make sure you stand by her in any manner, any matter. So those, those are bold statements that Paul's making. Uh, he doesn't make that statement actually about anybody else in the scripture. I don't know if that's here nor there, but I think it's interesting. He goes on to say that she's been a patron of many and of myself as well, literally a, a protector or a succorer, somebody who is able to bring back. So also a patron typically in church history. You, do you guys remember Lydia, for example? We know Lydia was well off. How do we know that? Number one, she was a seller of purple. Extremely, extremely expensive to sell purple, right? And when you look in Rome in the same time era, so Lydia's around the Mediterranean, right? But if you look in Rome, they're in Italy, uh, the people like, that bought um, purple from the sellers in the Mediterranean, because that's where the, the specific uh, shellfish lived that they would get purple from, you look at the, when you look at the graves and the tombs and so forth, uh, because in Rome, it's, it's, Roman history is fascinating. In Rome, when you had like a, a, most of them were just plates because most of them were buried in mausoleums because Rome was like a million people, right? They don't have graveyards. Uh, they did, but anyway. So it would always talk about who you were. So you'd be like, you know, Geristopulus, the baker. That was what would be on your epitaph. Some people had really funny things. Like it was normal to have some sort of witty thing like, hey, don't worry about me, I'm dead. You know, they had all these different things that they would put. It was very fascinating what they would put on their, their, their uh, epitaph or whatever you want to call it, right? And so all the graves that we have of people uh, in Rome that sold purple, they were very elaborate. They were, they were um, big and sometimes they had monuments to themselves. Uh, some, some, some of these people, it shows their hopelessness to some extent because some of them said, don't forget me. Please don't ever forget me. Please remember me. You know, it's very, very interesting, you know, what they put on there. So Lydia, we also know for a couple reasons. She has a servant that opens the door, right? So that's, that's impressive. She has a house that's big enough for the church to meet in. Now, she lives in um, the Mediterranean area, Right? But in Rome, if you watch or look at, read some Roman history, in Rome, a family of five would, uh, they had actually had apartment buildings. I don't know if you're, they're, they're pretty well. Some of them are preserved. They had like these five-story apartment buildings. And so if you were like a laborer, a day laborer, which most Romans were, you had a family of five, and if you basically like took this line and took that much of the stage, that's about where your family of five lived. And it's different because the, the richer you were, the lower you lived on, in, in the building. We have penthouses, right? Everybody, but, but in Rome, no. The rich people lived on the bottom because there's no toilets on the top, right? 
There were, I can't remember how many, like 80-something public restrooms in Rome. And when I say public, I mean public. Like you all sit in a circle staring at each other. Like, hey, how's it going? So if you lived in a top apartment, you had no water and you had no potty and you had no nothing. Actually, eating was very similar. So poor people always ate out and rich people ate at home because you have no fire in that little bedroom of yours. You literally sleep there. So most people, when they were in Rome, at the same time, we're talking the same era right here, to survive, they would make their little pittance doing their labor, and they would take a little bit of corn, and they would go to a baker, and he would bake it for them, and give it back to you, and you take that home to your kids, because you didn't have a place to cook, eat, wash, or any of that. So when you see these people, like Lydia, or you see um, someone like Phoebe, who's a patron, it's a big deal. They're taking care of people. They're making sure people have enough to eat. They're making sure people have a place to stay. They're making sure. So, so Phoebe is this woman, very similar to Lydia, and there's, there's others, uh, men included, in this picture. But there are those people, that are, they're helping. They're pouring out their life. And Paul says, she's not just a patron to many, but to me also. So he had a very personal interaction with her. Uh, most likely, if, if we want to make an inference or a guess, she probably was in Centuria, found out that Paul had come to Corinth and went there and began to spend time with them, ask him about you know, the work and ask him about Jesus and all these different things. So this relationship forms with them. So much so that he says, no, make sure that whatever she's doing, you guys take care of her to make sure it gets done. Then he says in verse 3, greet uh, Prisca and Aquila. Now it sounds a little bit different here. Um, it's it's the same person, uh, Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, in whom not only I have, excuse me, uh, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. You remember, what is it that stands out? Well, maybe not the most, I don't know, but what stands out at them? It's Priscilla and Aquila that take Apollos aside. Remember that? Apollos is there, excuse me, he's preaching. He preaches, he only knows the baptism of John. But he's preaching eloquently and powerfully the baptism of repentance. If you're familiar with that in the beginning of the book of John. And so after they hear him preach, and there's this uh, kind of a response to his teaching, and, and that, then they come up to him afterwards, and it says that they showed him the way of the Lord more excellently. So it was Priscilla and Aquila that come alongside Apollos and say, Hey, bro, that's cool. But there's this whole other part of Christianity after just turning to the Lord. The, that, that was Remember, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was make straight the paths of the Lord, which is kind of a Hebrew play on words for the word iniquity. But the idea was just make it easy for God to get to you. That's what that means. Make straight the paths of the Lord. Make it a straight line for God to get to you. So they say that's a good start, and then they encourage him. And then it's from that point he then is led, and he goes off on a missionary journey to Gentile churches. So when Paul says that they were an encouragement to him, he made tents with them. He hung out with them. He lived with them. They allowed him into their shop. And then from there, they're able also to instruct Apollos, which ends up blessing well, he says there, all the churches of the Gentiles. See, the thing is, I think for many of us, and, and, and just to reiterate the point and kind of mix it in here, the, the, the reality is for many of us is we, we want friends like this, don't we? Do you ever wonder where that, that uh, phrase comes from, to, to stick your neck out? From the Bible. 
It literally is translated, they stuck their necks out for me. In this case, it's literal because you have different um, emperors that are beheading people left and right, or, or Herod or whoever, right? So this, these little verses that we have, these little greetings, they give us a huge insight into what relationships were like in the work. Now, let's not forget, and it's a good point, that Paul also has a lot of relationships that go south. In other epistles, he talks about, like, for example, Demas, he left me for a love for this present world. He talks about Mark in the early years where he says, where they have the disagreement in, in Acts 13 between Mark and Barnabas. And, and, and Paul says, no, Mark left us in the middle of the work. He just took off. Whether the persecution was too much or whatever it was, we don't know. But John Mark abandons Paul and Barnabas. And so later on, Paul says, I can't trust him anymore to be with us on a journey. We need solid people, right? So it's, he's not, it's not that every relationship in the work actually works out. It's, it's, to be honest, when you are in a church setting and you have all these sinners in one place, sinners sin, right? And we sin against each other. And, 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 and I'm not excusing that or saying it should be that way or anything. I'm saying it happens. These relationships, any good relationship, a good marriage, a good father-kid uh, relationship, a good whatever, any, any relationship in the world only works through love and humility and forgiveness. It's the only one. These weren't great relationships because these were perfect people and they had perfect relationships. These are great relationships because they were broken people that forgave each other. And they were able to find a common bond in Christ. And then that, that common bond was then, uh, I don't know if you want to say fertilized or watered or was, was grown through going through conflict together, whether it be suffering for the gospel or suffering for one another or whatever it might be. See, they had the relationships because they invested in the relationships. And here, I'm not trying to spank the saints or make commentary on your personal life. I'm just saying that so many of us will come to church and we'll make judgment calls about the people at the church. And we'll say, well, I only got four handshakes, so screw that place, right? I'm out. I only got this or I only got that. And I understand churches should be friendly. I'm not excusing any bad behavior on, on, on the church in general's part. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that that's an unruled, an un, it's an unfair standard. And if we don't invest in each other and in relationship, we will never have it. And the more that we sit back and blame others for our lack of relationship, the more that we come into a pit of self-righteousness and pity. And then we invite other people to that and we say, yeah, that church sucked or those people sucked or they did this and they sucked and they all suck. Come hang out with me. Isn't that what happens? Isn't that what Facebook's for? Right? This is what occurs. This is how our society operates. We can never have this with our societal norms, if we bring them into the church, we will continue to be isolated and angry and anxious. That's the reality of where we live. We have to invest. There's more awesome stuff in here. <clears throat> um, he says here in verse 5, Greet also the church in their house. So they had a church, that, uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they had a church in their house. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved uh, Epinetus who was for the first convert to Christ in Asia. That'd be a cool title, right? I was the first guy to ever get saved in Asia. <laughs> I don't know how you quantify that, but I don't know. 
But he says, yeah, greet that guy. I'm just going to take a guess, okay? So feel free to dismiss this. You know, church, uh, uh, Paul tried to go a couple times to Asia. He's, he's forbidden. Then he starts the school of Tyrannus. Not Asia like China, Asia Minor like Turkey, right? Eastern Turkey. And so I'll bet Paul was really excited when he heard about this guy. You know, this guy just got saved. Whether it was he that talked to him or somebody from his school, the school of Tyrannus, did that person talk to him? Because it says through the school of Tyrannus, the whole of Asia heard the gospel. But twice Paul was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go into, the, to, go into Asia to preach the gospel. I'll bet he was so stoked. When you invest in your community for the sake of the gospel, you want to greet those people. You find out someone getting saved, you want to greet those people. And you want to be able to say, hey, I don't know what's going on. Steve, you want to check on that? You want to be able to say, hey, I'm so stoked that you got saved. This is so great. What, you know, what's going on? Tell that guy hello. It's exciting when you invest and you see God do a great work. And that's, what, that's what's going on here. He says this, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and, and they were in Christ before me. So he says, just, this is a Mary. We don't know which Mary. Was it Mary Magdalene? Was it Mary the mother of Jesus? We have no idea. Was it just some other Mary? It was a very common name, as you might have noticed from the New Testament, because there's like four. But he just says, Mary worked hard. That's a great honor. She worked hard. I'm not saying that she merited a greeting, like she somehow wiggled into like Paul's good graces because she worked hard. I'm just saying that he met her, walked with her. And his commentary about her is, make sure you say hello to her. She worked so hard when I was, when, when I was with her, when I saw her. You know, again, we can't just like sit back and think relationships going to happen to us. Relationships take work. And they hurt. He says of Andronicus, there you go, that's, I never had a son, but Andronicus, that's like, no, I'm just kidding, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't want him to be mocked for his entire life. I was going to go with Clive Staples if my wife let me, but uh, anyway, Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. He says, those people that were in prison with me at one point, who knows which time, was it when he was in Philippi? Is that when he met him? Did he, did he preach the gospel to someone in prison? It's not in Rome that he met him. So he makes friends with prisoners. They get saved. And he says, hey, they're my fellow prisoners. Make sure you say hello to them. Right? It's good stuff. Greet, uh, greet uh, Amplitius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apels, or Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Or Narcissus. You know, the interesting thing is you have four different cultures represented in these names. You have Persians, you have Jewish names, you have Roman names, and you have Greek names. All very different cultures. There's a lot of similarities between Roman and Greek culture, but not between Roman and Jewish culture. You know, not between Persian and Greek culture. They're all very different cultures. 
And so you have all these people, from all these people that he met in prison, people that he met you know, uh, making tents, people that he met because he was just chilling in Corinth. There was people that he met and he talked to. And we actually read at the end of his life when he's under house arrest by Nero, well, it's kind of the end of his life. It's the end of the part that we have about his life from the Bible. He's living in a rented house under house arrest by Nero. And it says, and people visited him from all over the place and he preached the gospel to them. This is an incredible social portion to what's going on and what's important in the gospel, and that's what's happening here. And, he, and, he, and he, uh, in these last couple, you know, he says, look, um, approved of Christ. You can say about all believers. Belong to the family of Aristobulus, that, their whole family there. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Now, he uses the word kinsman about five or six times here. He's not talking about his literal family, Okay. Uh, he's probably not talking about even the tribe of Benjamin, like a tribal type of thing, because there's little chance that Herodian is from Benjamin. In fact, with Herodian, again, this is a little bit of speculation, but with Herodian, that's probably not the person's real name. It's something that they became known by. Because Herodians, remember, Herods were, were kind of kings in a sense, kind of superior governors over entire regions, right? So you have multiple Herods. You have like Herod the Great, who started the temple building. You have Herod the Second, and on down. And most of the Herods were pretty rancid people. Some claimed to be Jews, and some claimed to, to, to adopt Judaism, and some claimed not to. But if you were a Herodian, meaning you were part of Herodian's family, and you got saved and became a Christian, that's not something you would want known by your Herodian family. That would cost you dearly. So there's a very good chance that he's just referring to, because that'd be a weird name too, just like of the family of Herod. You just name someone. You are of the family of Herod. Probably not a real name. Probably just somebody that he knew that was in Rome that was related to a Herod. Also, a narcissist. Uh, it's not what you think. <laughs> he's not a narcissist. This is not, he's not saying, hey, greet that guy who's got that family and all he cares about is himself. No, he's, it's, it's actually kind of a funnier name than that. Um, it's from where we get our word narcotic. It's narco. It means numbness. So for whatever reason, the parents, used, you know, his name was numbness. Maybe he was really chill as a baby. I don't know. But uh, that's, that's who he is. And he says, hey, greet that family. Um, kind of interestingly enough. And then he says, greet those workers in the Lord, uh, Trephina and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. So the Trephina and Trephosa, um, we don't know, but most people believe them. There's two female names, and because they both are very similar, uh, most scholars conclude that they're probably twins. They'd gotten saved, and, and now they're, uh, you know, they're writing. He's writing them. They're in Rome now, and, and, and that. Then he says, uh, Persis, which is, it's a uh, Persian name. So it's a woman of Persia uh, who worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus. This may or may not be the same Rufus from the Gospels. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. The verse 13 I think is another really important one, and it's the idea of, of uh, motherhood or fatherhood, and not just in the sense of uh, literal. I mean, Paul is not saying, hey, we have the same mom, right? He's just saying that she, his mother, and she was a mother. He says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother. Greet his mother also, who has been a mother to me as well. And I think that this is really an important idea, not just for women, but for men also. 
because of the isolation, there's, there's some weird things that can happen in um, society, and there's some weird things now. I think there can be a temptation in young people to despise the older people and to just be like, you're so out of the times, you're so this, you're so that. I think that there can be an opportunity for older people sometimes to despise the younger, saying, you're an idiot. You haven't lived as long as I have. You don't know what I do. And why would you, why would you act the way you are, right? And there can be a real tension here. And there's an importance, I think, that especially in, in God's house, that we don't dispense with one or the other. That we don't look at one another and say, well, you're older, or you're this, or you don't know. Or that we look at, oh, you're younger, so you're a moron. But to actually invest and to consider one another. I know for me personally, uh, I have a letter here. It's kind of interesting. This is my own personal journey. So this letter is postmarked uh, August 14th, 1993. Uh, so I was 17. So I've talked a little about well, when I grew up, but my parents were good parents. They were 100%. But they worked typically from, I, I don't know, in my memory is like a 6.30, about 6.30 at night, or 6.30 in the morning to about 6.30 at night. And we had a lot. We had a lot of money and whatever. But they weren't really around. I had a nanny. I didn't really get to know them at all. And that's part of one of the reasons why I got saved is because we had everything. And it was garbage. It was dust and ashes. And, you know, it all was. It was worthless. And, and so I became very hopeless at a very young age, realizing what we had and realized it was, it was worthless. And when I got saved, my parents' response to it was way more along the lines of like, well, that's cool if that's what you want to do. Because they weren't Christians. And so what happened was, I just kind of started living this. I, we already had separate lives. And I'm not here to criticize them. They did the best they could. I'm not casting any shade on my folks. But because of that, I didn't really have a lot of support in my Christianity. I was just kind of floating around. And there was a lady, and her name's Judy. Uh, I'm not sure where she lives today. I haven't had contact with her for a lot of years. And she took me under her wing a little bit. Uh, she had a daughter that was my age, and uh, she had some other kids. And so like, if she was going to take the kids on a family outing, she would call me up and invite me to go too. And so I would, I would go to these things. You know, the funny thing is, and, and I want to let me make a disclaimer. I think doctrine and theology is really important. And if I didn't, I surely wouldn't be doing this. But having said that, the reason I'm walking with Jesus today is because of Judy. Not because of doctrine. I've had a million pastors in my life. That's it, hyperbole. I've probably had 20. But they never contributed to me what she did. I, and I, I will say this, and I hope you can hear my heart. This is no boast because it's not very exciting. I could probably give you a theological answer to any verse in the Bible because I've read so much. And I've sat through so many lectures. And I've watched so much, you know, auto, uh, what do you want to call it? Autodidactic teaching type stuff. I, I've read it all. But nothing compares to what this lady did in my life. And I'm not being dramatic. I would not be walking with Jesus Christ if it wasn't for this woman. Because all the doctrine in the world to me meant squat if I didn't know somebody cared about me. And all the pastors that tried to encourage me in the way, I lived with pastors for years, I saw the pastor life, all this stuff, stuff. But it was these. I'll just read you a little excerpt. Dear James, well, well, 
We are actually here on a day of rest in the Rocky Mountains, and what, you ask, do I think of doing? Write James. <laughs> Let this be a statement to you, young man, of my deep affections. And your, of course, reaction? Yes, Mom. And then she goes on and just talks about the trip, that they go to like a, what do you call this, a salt bath or whatever, and they kind of do some stuff together, her and her husband. And then she ends it with this. Well, now the mail goes out at noon, and this must be um, sorted, uh, something sorted out of the, the post. I want you to know I am praying great things for you. You are very precious to me. As my young brother in our common faith. I was going to try to make it through. Keep all that you face in the context of that faith in him and be at peace. The key word here is yield, yield, yield. Much love in him, Judy. So she's probably about 46, I think, or 45 when she wrote this. And I was 17. And, you know, I was a punk. I was raging. I was fighting. I was so mad at life because we had everything and it meant nothing. But the fact that, and again, I'm not trying to poo-poo on doctrine. It's not what kept me in Christ. It was the fact that there was somebody who loved me. Is doctrine important? Of course it is. Of course what we say is important. Of course what we believe is of the utmost importance. But that doesn't win people. Amen. Sitting down with people and just saying, this is what you have to believe and this is what it is and this is that. It doesn't win people. It doesn't get relationship, which is what we all want. Let's be honest. It's what we want. We want it with Christ and I know, the, I know the company line, and the company line is true, that there is no ultimate fellowship outside of Christ. I get that, but we experience it through one another right now. Yes, we can experience it in our devotions, hopefully in times of having uh, fellowship and, and getting in the Word together and worshiping together, 100%. But for the most part, it's going to be through you and I as we dialogue as we go through hard times, as we laugh together, as we weep together, as we deal with life together. See, what the church needs is, it needs discipleship, but it needs loving discipleship. It needs care for one another, deep-seated feeling for one another from God. And until we, we walk in that, and again, like, I'm not saying we're not starting a new program, Why did, write a young person today. Like, we're not doing that. Right? <laughs> But the program that we want to start is, 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 is it's individual. It's with you. Who can you invest in? I, I'd, be, I'd be curious. If we took a poll here, would there be anybody who said who would say, I'd be so angry if I got a letter telling me that God had great things for me. I'd be so mad about that. I'd be so angry if someone texted me and just said, hey, I'm praying for you. I love you, and so does Jesus. That would piss me off to no end. No, of course it wouldn't. See, that we need, as human beings, we are designed to be loved. It's why we do crazy things to try to get it. When in reality, Christ has offered it to us, and it's in one another that we share. The Bible says, cast your cares on one another. It doesn't say just cast your cares on Jesus. It says that too. But it also says, cast your cares on one another. And pray with each other. 
Confess your faults to one another, and you'll find healing. Isn't that what we all want? Isn't that why we all came here this morning? To find healing for our souls? To find hope for our minds to be set on? To find inclusion to be settled? But it comes only at a cost. And again, we're not saying that we, we get it because we work for it. We're saying that we have to be a part of it to experience it. Do you see the difference? And so, I, you know, the encouragement, there's no ultimate application of do X, Y, and Z, and then you'll be listed in, you know, the heavenly Romans 16. No, no. It's do what God tells you to do. Who can you invest in? Who can you allow to invest in you? And as, as, we, as we walk that way, as we grow that way, this will be our experience. Rather than for many of us, tragically, the experience can be, I come to church and then I leave. And I come in and hopefully I get encouraged, 100%. Hopefully I learn about the scripture and, and what it has for me. Hopefully I, I, I bless God as I genuinely worship him and out of my spirit and in truth. But, but also hopefully we go out of here changed, knowing we're cared for. Again, this is no assault on you guys. I'm actually really blessed by our church significantly. I know you guys communicate to each other. I, I know that you guys fill one another's needs. I know you take care of each other. So I'm not saying this in any kind of wrath or rebuke. I'm saying this because we need, we need to keep going, and it's hard. Because we get our feelings hurt. Because we're hanging, we're hanging out with, with sinners. And sinners hurt feelings, don't they? Like on the regular. Sometimes it can feel like more often than not. But through Christ, that strength, we, we continue to invest. We continue to, to invite people. So here's the thing. We need matriarchs and patriarchs. We need Rufus's mom. We need people to, to, we need to love each other and receive the love that each other has for us. For us. And that's how we'll see this, this great thing work better and better. That's how every joint will build up, how every joint will supply in love. Verse 14 Greet Asinicus, uh, Citratus, uh, Phlegon, Hermes, yes, Hermes, like the Greek god, Patrobus, Hermas, the female version of Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, Olympias, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And the holy kiss is essentially, you know, like, for example, if you were to go to France or Spain today, uh, when I went to France, I just held my hand out really fast and told everybody I was American. Because <laughs> if, you, if you don't do that, you get the kiss on the cheek. And I'm just like, I don't want that. I don't, the bisou or bezu or whatever it is. I'm like, I'm not French. I don't want your lips near me. <laughs> but that's the idea. It's just a cultural idea. And, they, and people tell me, James, you should have gone and enjoyed the culture. No, I brought our culture, and they got to enjoy a handshake. That's what true missionaries do. Just kidding. I'm not kidding about not bezoing. I'm not into that at all. But the, you know, but the ultimate, that's what he's saying. When he's saying greet each other with a holy kiss, it's the, that's, that's how they greeted. This was the greeting of the day, that coming up and that on the cheek or whatever. And so he's, he's just saying, like, look, greet each other. For us, it would be like shake each other's hands with a holy handshake. A handshake out of motivation from, from good, right? That's what he's saying. And so it it's all blends in, right? If someone is not willing to shake your hand, that can be offensive, right? And so he's just saying, look, make that connection. 
Now, I'm, again, we're not making any health statements here at all. We're just talking about fellowship, right? Making and investing effort in fellowshipping so that we can be part of the solution for everybody's life. And we have no idea. The smallest input can change a life. It's really true. The smallest investment, the smallest gesture or care. You know, somebody might say, oh, well, you know, or might be tempted to say, well, Judy probably had a great life. And she, and she just, you know, that was flowing out of her great life. Will it be about, I don't know, eight years? No, probably ten years after I read this letter, uh, after she sent me the letter is a better way to put it, that I found out that her husband beat her. Yeah. That, that when she went for counsel from some of the pastors, they basically told her to hang in there. Yeah, horrible counsel. So the thing is, we can try to pretend, well, when I get my stuff together, or when I have a perfect life, then I'll invest. It's a lie. It's a lie, because we'll never have our stuff together. And we're never going to have a perfect life. There will never be a good time to invest in someone else. It'll never come. It only keeps being a good time to invest in ourselves and to, to focus on ourselves and to consider ourselves, which is a very depressing and a very anxious place to be. So I just encourage you, be a Judy. <laughs> It'll change a life. It really will. A simple text like, hey, thinking about you, care about you, whatever it might be. You know, God has great things for you guys, too. He has great ministries for you. None of you guys are done with your ministry because you're still breathing. If you stop breathing, then you're done. It might, it might change in what it looks like, whether it's health or location or whatever. Things can change what ministry looks like, but it's not done. There's still people that need your love and need your care. So don't give up. Don't give up if they hurt your feelings because they're going to. They just, just tuck it away right now to say, just, just think in your mind right now, make a post-it note, people are going to hurt me. And I'm unfortunately probably going to hurt people. And then just leave it there and say, but the Lord knows. And when they hurt you, you say, Lord, that hurt. And I'm upset. <laughs> work through it. Nobody's saying suppress it. But just know it's going to happen. Be prepared to work through it and continue to give. And you will never be disappointed. All right. So we're, it looks like they're carrying things in for the fundraiser. They must have tranquilized the children because I don't know what's They're quiet now. <laughs> oh, that Versed came in handy. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> we had a little visit from Narcissus. Um, just, I, I keyed. All right. God is good, huh? Let's pray. Father, thank you for all the people in our lives that you motivated to bless us. Lord, thank you for all the people that invested in us, that cared about us, and still do. Lord, please forgive us for not forgiving people. Lord, we, it's easy to harbor bitterness and anger. But we thank you for the example of our Lord Jesus Christ that, though consisted in the form of God, did not consider equality to not exist and that and that authority. Thank you, Lord, that you emptied yourself of everything and became a servant, and that you died and bled out for us, and that by the power of your Father that you waited upon rose from the dead. Lord, we are asking you for that fresh filling of your Holy Spirit, the reminder of the power of the cross. Lord, may we be those that, in the worst of our circumstances, are still able and willing 
to look upon others. May we invest in others. Lord, I pray that our church would grow in maturity, that I would grow, that we would grow together. And Lord, that it really, uh, that the dynamic here would be that we all uh, contribute to one another in love. Lord, help us to repent when we're selfish. Help us to turn to you and allow your spirit to cleanse that out of us. And may this community be blessed by us, by your people, by a loving first aid station of spiritual value. Lord, you're very kind and we appreciate it. Pray bless the fundraiser, our fellowship during it. And Lord, that you would do great things in this week to come. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.